You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Gospel Community Church. If I haven't met you or you don't know me, my name, my name is Brad. Uh, we're going to, as you saw in the video, and Chris mentioned, we're going to continue our series through the book of Philippians. So if you will, open your Bible to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We'll look at the, the last four verses of chapter 1 this morning, verses 27 through 30. I'll read this passage and then pray and we'll jump in. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we can gather here this morning to hear from your word, to sing praises to you, to engage in fellowship with one another. Um, all of these things are, are gracious gifts from you um, that we are thankful for. And uh, also, as we're going to see today, God, suffering uh, for the sake of the gospel is a gracious gift from you. And so as we uh, each of us come in this morning in a variety of places, uh, places of joy, places of struggle, places of suffering, um, places of flourishing. Uh, the, the gospel speaks to each and every one of us. Uh, there, is, there is something in your word for, for all of us here this morning, no matter, where, uh, we're, no matter what we're coming in with. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us all to hear and receive your word this morning, uh, that you'd use it in each of our lives to convict and challenge and comfort and ultimately point to you, Jesus. I pray that you'd help me speak uh, well and, and clearly in a way that brings glory to you and your name. I pray that 
yeah, you would give us eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, and hearts that uh, desire to be obedient to you in our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I know you're all familiar with uh, the phrase, you have to walk the walk before you can talk the talk, or maybe you, you talk the talk, but can you walk the walk, something like that. A good example of this that is close to home for uh, our GCC church family uh, is our beloved lead pastor, Rick Reeves, who's on sabbatical, probably won't listen to this, and so he can't beat me up, uh, so I'm going to pick on him a little bit. He talks often about thinking that he could take a silverback gorilla in hand-to-hand combat, uh, and... You're laughing because you've heard him say this. He said this from the pulpit. He said this in private conversations. He has a lot of confidence in his ability to fight a silverback gorilla. And so to Rick, we would say, okay, Rick, you keep talking the talk. Let's see you walk the walk and get in the octagon with a silverback gorilla. We all know how that's going to go. Rick's not going to have any limbs left after that. Um, so uh, Rick, <laughs> this is a silly example of someone talking the talk, but eh, let's see them walk the walk and actually take on a gorilla. This walking the walk is, is what Paul turns to now in his letter to the Philippians. So far, if you've been sticking with us in his prayer, he talked about the Philippians' defense of the gospel. They've been defending it uh, against uh, claims against it or, or against opposition. Last week, Ronnie talked about the mission of Christians and our proclamation of the gospel, how we're supposed to speak the gospel, proclaim it, announce it. And this week, we're going to see that not only do we defend it and proclaim it, but we also must live out the gospel. We must live lives that put the gospel on display to the world around us. And this is an important uh, aspect of our life as Christians is defending the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, but also living in light of the gospel. That's what this series is all about. We're calling it a gospel blueprint because the gospel is the blueprint we look look towards to build both our lives and the life of the church. Uh, In commentating on this passage, Alec Motier says it like this. He poses it in the form of a question. Why should people believe our defense of the cause of Christ if they cannot see Christ in us? Or take any notice of our offer of a saving Christ if they do not see the fruits of salvation and the beauty of holy living? In other words, why would someone believe our defense or proclamation of the gospel if we don't live a life that then shows evidence of those things being true. If we proclaim and defend Christ, then hopefully when they look at our lives, they can see Christ. And this is, so this is what Paul is, is getting in, that, in this passage. This is kind of the, the main point of this text, this paragraph, is verse 27 when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, The word underneath manner of life here is a really interesting one. The root word is the word for citizen. And so you might have a note, if you have an ESV, you probably have a note in your Bible that says uh, behave as citizens or something along those lines. I think it's important to to identify this because Paul is picking up on something that he would have been aware of in the Philippian church. Philippi was a Roman colony, uh, which was a big deal in the Roman empire. It was not located near geographically Rome, and yet it was considered a Roman colony. So if you were a, if you lived in Philippi, if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were a citizen of Rome. And being a citizen of Rome had all kinds of benefits and privileges, but it also brought with it responsibility. You were representing Rome. You are a representative of this, this larger kingdom, this larger empire that your life should reflect. If you looked at the life of a Philippian, you should be able to say, oh, this is a Roman citizen based on the way they talk, the way they dress, their customs, the way they live their lives. 
Now, the Philippian Christians are citizens of a much larger, much greater, and more eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so in the same way that you could look at a Philippian and say, oh, it's a Roman citizen based on the way they live, Paul is saying that you should be able to look at a Philippian Christian and say, oh, they're a part of the kingdom of God based on how they live. They also have benefits and privileges that come with being a citizen of the kingdom of God, but that carries with it responsibility as well. Responsibility to represent God's kingdom in this world. So that's the idea here is is we're living as citizens of the kingdom of God in whatever location we are, and we should do that in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, first, what it does not mean is that your life is lived in such a way that you deserve the gospel, that all of a sudden you are now worthy of the good news of salvation through Christ because of the way that you're living your life. That's not what it's saying. Rather, what it's saying is that a life worthy of the gospel is one that is attributing worth to the gospel. You're living in such a way that you're putting on display the value and worthiness of this good news, the worthiness of Christ. A life worthy of the gospel is one that's lived in such a way that people look at that life and say, wow, the gospel is valuable to them. The gospel has worth to them because they're living in this kind of way. So let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is this gospel of Christ that we're living worthy of? What is this gospel, this good news uh, that should, be, should have, have so much worth in our life that that's reflected in how we interact? John Piper is helpful here. He has a, just a paragraph that is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Philippians. And so he goes through the whole book of Philippians and puts together this paragraph with references. So everything that Paul says about the gospel, and, and here's the gospel. The gospel of Christ is the good news that Christ, who is equal with God, became a human being, obeyed God perfectly, died and rose again. So that by union with him, all who believe will be counted righteous with Christ's righteousness and obedience, and so be saved from sin and destruction, and belong to Christ forever in the resurrection from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what God has done in history to reconcile all things to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is equal to God, his own son, fully God, fully man, who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose from the grave so that we could be counted righteous with him as we're united to him. So this is the, 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 again, what Paul is saying is live your life worthy of the gospel. Live your life in such a way that worth is attributed to this good news, this message of salvation in Christ. And then he goes on to explain what this worthy life looks like. And it, it, he says a lot, we're going to talk about it, but in summary, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life that is steadfast in suffering, a life of steadfastness in the face of suffering. This is the worthy life, a life worthy of the gospel. And specifically, specifically here, the type of suffering we're talking about is suffering as a result of persecution. The Philippians were experiencing a lot of persecution and opposition to the faith. If you jump down to verse 30 in this passage, it says, uh, Paul says that they're engaged in the same conflict that they saw Paul have, and now hear that he still has. So the conflict that they hear that he still has is the current conflict where he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome, writing from a jail cell, and he's in prison because of his preaching of the gospel. So that's a conflict that they are hearing about him having, is imprisonment for the sake of Christ. We actually know what conflict they saw him have as well from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, we have a detailed account of Paul and Silas visiting Philippi and planting the church there that he's writing to now. 
And in verses 19 through 24, we get this account of what happens to Paul and Silas. And this is the, the conflict that the Philippians would have seen Paul have. It says this, but context here, that as they're walking to gather for prayer, uh, a demon-possessed possessed girl comes by, and they cast a demon out of her and uh, rescue her. And her owners get frustrated because now they can't make a profit off of her. And so this is what happens. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this is the conflict the Philippians saw Paul have when he was with them. They're arrested, dragged to before the rulers, they're stripped and then beaten with rods, attacked and ultimately thrown into prison with their feet in shackles. So, and, and Paul is saying, you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and that you heard I had, imprisonment and persecution for the sake of Christ. Now, most sermons, at least that I've heard, and ones that I've given on persecution usually have a line in there somewhere that say, now I know we don't experience this kind of persecution today in our world, and, so, and then I think what happens is we hear that and we check out a little bit. Because none of us are being stripped naked, beaten with rods, and thrown into prison for our faith right now in the United States. That happens around the world, and I think we should be aware of that and in prayer for those people who that does happen to. Here in, in, in the United States, where we experience some degree of religious freedom, this isn't happening to this extent, to this type of extreme. That doesn't mean that what Paul says here has nothing to do with us. It still has everything to do with us. And we should be thankful that we don't have to experience the worst of this and then buckle down with even more steadfastness and standing firm because the consequences of our faith in Christ are not as bad as they could be. Now, I don't, I don't think, now, again, we're not being thrown in prison, but just listen again to what the people say about Paul and Silas in Philippi. And I'm going to replace some words here and see if this sounds familiar. These men and women are Christians and they're disturbing our city. They're disturbing our nation. They're disturbing our neighborhood. They advocate for customs, beliefs, values, lifestyles that are not loving, not tolerant, not inclusive, not peaceful for us as Americans to accept or practice or be okay with. I think we could probably all recognize that there's some familiarity to things like that that we are hearing and seeing in, uh, in, our, in the culture around us. Now, the result is not imprisonment or physical beatings. And I think it's okay to pray that that never happens. But that doesn't mean that there still isn't a sentiment in our world against Christianity that makes social settings and social environments and, and how we navigate our world as Christians uh, doesn't make it easy all the time. So this is the environment that the Philippians are in, an environment of persecution and opposition. We often find ourselves in a similar environment, the less extreme of persecution and opposition. And Paul says that a life worthy of the gospel in this environment is one that stands firm, is one that is steadfast, one that stands strong in the face of all of this. It says, verse 27 again, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. 
The image here is one of defense. It's being immovable in the face of attack or opposition. It's holding your ground, standing firm, being, being strong and immovable. And there's two kind of qualifiers here, two ways that this steadfastness plays itself out. The steadfastness is active and courageous. First, active. He says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there's a striving. So if steadfastness is an image of defense, like a wall or a fortress that is immovable, you also have this offensive element, not like I'm going to offend you, but like uh, football, like defense, offense, you know what I'm saying? So there's also an, an active striving involved in our steadfastness. There's an offensive element to our defense. What are we striving for? What are we actively pursuing? It says the faith of the gospel. You could read this phrase two ways, and I think both ways are accurate because they actually go hand in hand. First, you could read this as belief, belief in the gospel. We're striving so that people would come to believe in the gospel. This is evangelism. It's the mission that Ronnie talked about last week. It's us proclaiming and defending the gospel and living it out so that people in the world would come to know Jesus and believe in him, have faith in the gospel. That is absolutely what we should be striving for as Christians. It could also mean faith as in truth, faith as in like the, the creed of the gospel or the, the deposit of beliefs that make up the gospel. And so we're striving to defend and uphold the truth. We're striving to actively uh, preserve and protect what is true about who God is, about who we are, about what's wrong with the world, and about the hope that we have in Christ. Now, these things go hand in hand. If you're going to call people, into, call people to repentance and belief, we need to have the truth of what, that, of what they're believing in, and we need to be firm on that. But then also, if we're actively pursuing truth and upholding that, that's going to lead us to call people to belief in Jesus. So we are actively striving in the midst of persecution. The way we stand fast, one of the ways we stand fast and be steadfast is by actively striving for the faith of the gospel, to call people to repentance and to uphold truth. The next part is to be courageous. He says, and not fearing anything by your opponents. Be fearless. Now, the Philippians are fearing that what they might be fearing, that Paul's telling them to be fearless or courageous in the face of, is physical harm. Seems like that is a part of this. Prison, that's both in both of Paul's instances, what you saw and what you heard, prison is involved in that, and potentially even the loss of life. Paul says in the passage we looked at last week, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's prepared to die for the sake of the gospel. And so the, the theme throughout here is the fear of loss, a fear of losing things. And this, this, is, this tracks, this makes sense. If you're going to live your life in a way that attributes worth to the gospel, then that means that, there's, that you're making a conscious decision to live your life in a way that doesn't attribute worth to other things that people in our world might attribute worth to. And that means that those things you might lose. In fact, you will lose. All kinds of things that we could lose living a life for, that's worthy of the gospel. Could potentially lose reputation or social status. Associating yourself with Jesus, associating yourself with the gospel, associating and identifying yourself with the church is not necessarily super popular in most circles. And when you do that, and when you do that boldly, that could mean a loss of a reputation in your workplace, friend group, family, whatever that might be. It could also mean the loss of possessions. A life worthy of the gospel is going to lead us to a generosity and a willingness to give away our possessions, but it also could mean the loss of possessions in other ways. 
Changing business practices or your company's values to be more in line with the gospel could have negative implications on the bottom line. Are you ready and willing to do that for the sake of Christ? It could also mean the loss of dreams or goals. And this is a touchy one. And I do think in, to a degree, God gives us desires that are good. He gives us dreams and goals that are good. But I think in a lot of cases in our individualistic society that's very self-focused and, and, and it has a desire to, fulfill, to fulfill whatever is longing is in us as an individual, our dream job, dream vacation, dream house, dream school, all of these dreams in our life become idols that we worship. And when we worship the idols of our dreams, it draws us away from community and out of the mission field in a way that does not attribute worth to Christ but rather worth to our dreams or our goals. So you might have to lose those. Could mean the loss of comfort. Following Jesus means denying desires and pleasures and things of this world that could provide a certain level of comfort. Paul was not comfortable in prison. Christians throughout the world are not comfortable as they follow Christ in ways that uh, bring about lots of persecution. You're going to have to lose and give up a lot of comfort in your life to follow Jesus. And lastly, and ultimately, it could potentially mean the loss of life. This was a very real reality, real reality. This was a reality for Paul that he was prepared to face is dying for the sake of Christ, losing your life for, to follow Jesus. Paul says, don't be afraid. You can be fearless. You can stand firm with fearlessness, not afraid of losing anything because there's nothing in this life that you could lose that compares to what you've gained in Christ. Paul says later in Philippians, we'll get to this passage, that he counts everything that he's gained in his life as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Everything in our life we should be willing and ready to lose because we've already gained in Christ everything we need, both in this life and the next. And so a life worthy of the gospel is a life of active and courageous steadfastness in the face of suffering. He goes on to say what this then does to the world around us. Uh, I think this is a really fascinating passage. What happens to those around us when, we, when this kind of life is lived? It says it's a clear sign to your opponents of their destruction and of your salvation. So it becomes a clear sign, not a muddy sign, not like an encoded sign that you need to like decipher, not a sign that's a little foggy or fuzzy, a clear sign to the world of their destruction and of your salvation. Um, in... The, <laughs> I love this illustration, and you guys are, I don't know if you're going to like it or not, but it's great. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, there was a uh, Harvard grad and scientist who did an experiment on rats. And by today's standards, this experiment is so cruel and messed up, so I don't recommend it. But it's fascinating. The results are fascinating. Okay, he takes uh, rats, and he puts them in buckets of water, and then times how long they can swim. And on average, the rats lasted about 15 minutes of treading water before they drowned. I said it was cool. Hang in there. Um, they're rats. They're not puppies. Okay. Um, he, he did a second experiment. Another group of rats, same thing, puts them in buckets of water and starts timing how long they can swim. When they stop swimming and they start to sink, he rescues them out of the water, places them on dry ground, dries them off, lets them get a little bit of a rest, and then puts them back in the water. After he does that, the rats swam on average 60 hours so much longer than before they were rescued. And he writes this in his, his, uh, uh, after, after conducting the experiment. He says, after the elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. The rats that were rescued and got a glimpse of hope, they'll live forever. They'll tread water 
for hours, for days. The ones that have no hope of being rescued, they don't last very long. What in the world is my point? We're all rats. <laughs> and life is hard. And everyone's just treading water as best as they can. And those who are in Christ have been rescued and saved from, from that, that drowning and from death. And so we'll swim forever. Because we know that the God who rescued us and saved us is going to be faithful to save us in the future. But the rats that don't have that kind of rescue, that, that, that rescue, that salvation, they look at the rats that are swimming forever and they're like, man, what do they have to swim for? What is it that they have to live for that's, that's giving them the kind of endurance that I don't have? There's nothing in my life that is willing me or motivating me to swim for that long. The, the lack of a true lasting hope in the life of the unbeliever is testament of itself, in and of itself, of their ultimate destruction. And so when, when the world looks at, at the life of a Christian that is enduring suffering, that is standing fast, that is actively striving for truth in the faith of the gospel, that is fearless, you're losing everything in your life, and you're not afraid, but courageous, the world looks at that and goes, I'm missing something. I don't have that. And all the things in my life that I am living for, the worth in that doesn't hold up to the worth of what these people are living for. And ultimately, it's going to lead to destruction. On the flip side, the rats that are swimming forever are looking around and like, whoa, we're swimming forever. We must have been saved by something. We must have hope in something. And so it is a clear sign then of our salvation, of our endurance, of our perseverance, because an outside source has reached in and rescued us and saved us. And so it's a confirmation that we will endure and make it to the end. Okay, now, what about the how? How, do, how does Paul expect this to happen? There's two things here, two kind of keys to this type of active, courageous steadfastness in the face of suffering. First, we do it together. If you notice throughout this passage, there's all kinds of community language. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to say a strong and bold statement, and you might disagree with me. That's okay. Steadfastness is not possible outside of community. You will not stand firm in the face of suffering and opposition alone. So it's a bold statement. It's one I believe because I think Scripture attests to it. I think experientially we know that friends and family who drift away from community ultimately, eventually, most likely, drift away from Christ. Paul says that we are standing firm in one spirit. Spirit in your Bible is probably has a, a little s, lowercase s. So the same Greek word for like the human spirit and the Holy Spirit is the same thing. And so we use context to determine which spirit is the author talking about. I think in this context, it makes the most sense that Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit, God's spirit, that we're united together in one spirit being the spirit of God. The spirit, the Holy Spirit is the location or the sphere that we are all united within. And so to be, to be steadfast, you must be united together with a community of the spirit, a spirit community, which means two things. One, you have to have the spirit. You actually have to be a believer in Jesus, regenerate and, and given the spirit as a gift from God in order to experience this kind of unity and community, and then therefore this kind of steadfastness. But then second, if you have the spirit, you need to be a part of a community of spirit-filled people. You need to be a part of a church. It is a spirit that grants a steadfastness, partly by bringing us together, uniting us as one. Paul says, 
with one mind striving side by side. Uh, the ancient Greeks used a military technique called a phalanx, which if you've seen the movie 300, not recommending it, I'm just saying. Um, we're always on the pulpit recommending bad movies for people to watch. But uh, it's where the like Greek soldiers would have a shield and they'd stand side by side and they'd interlock the shields together and it makes a wall of shields and then it's immovable. And there's this whole epic scene where they do that in the movie. It's great. But the point is that there's all these individuals that are standing side by side but they move as one, one complete whole unit. It's one cohesive wall of shields that are standing side by side. And if one fails, the whole thing crumbles. This is the image that Paul is bringing to mind when he says striving side by side. The church is made up of individuals. We all individually are, have the Holy Spirit within us, but then brought together, we become one, one mind, one person, side by side, working together to stand firm. We're united together by the Spirit. We share in the mind of Christ, which we all have together. And so then we strive side by side for one another, with one another for the faith of the gospel to endure together the opposition of the world. I mentioned this briefly, but so I, I've been in some kind of ministry setting uh, leadership for eight or nine years, which isn't very long in the grand scheme of things, but it's long enough to identify and notice patterns. Um, and I don't think these patterns are crazy, and it's probably something you've experienced as well. Over that time, I've seen numerous people walk away from the faith. See, numerous people go from excited about Jesus, going to church, loving the community, to abandoning it altogether and wanting nothing to do with Christ. And early on, in almost every single circumstance, the thing that, that is consistent among almost every story is isolation. Now, it could be church hurt that leads people to abandon the church and stop meeting together. It's usually just kind of a slow drift, inconsistency, other things in life become more important and show up every once in a while and then eventually not very much at all. Or it could be a conscious decision. I'm done with this whole organized religion thing. I'm on my own. And then on their own, the temptations of the world and the lies of the enemy become too much to bear and it gets abandoned. All, the gospel gets abandoned altogether. And so I'll say this again. I do not believe that you will stand firm alone. I do not think that you will remain steadfast in the face of opposition by yourself because you're not designed to. God didn't make you to stand strong on your own. No matter how many times we are told that we are strong, independent individuals, it's not biblical. You're great. You're better when you're in a community. And so my, the, if you want to, if this life worthy of the gospel of steadfastness and enduring is appealing to you in any way, step one, be a part of a spirit community. Be a part of a church a community of people that together have the same mind and are united by the Spirit of God. So there was two things. The second thing, first thing is we have to do it together. The second thing is we have to recognize that suffering is a gift. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Uh, that word granted, it's, it's the word grace. It has been graciously gifted to you. Grace is a, a it's a, Undeserved favor. It's a one-way love. It's, a, it's a, a gift that is given without anything done on the, by the other party to deserve or earn that gift. And it says, it has been graciously given to you by God for the sake of Christ, not only your belief in him. So this, this, this is the type of gift we're talking about, salvation. Your faith in Christ is a gift from God, a gracious gift from God that he's lavished on you. You know what else is a gracious gift from God that he's lavished on you? Suffering. Suffering for Christ's sake. In the same way that our salvation is a gift from God, so is our suffering. Your suffering 
is not a sign of God's anger towards you. It's not a sign that God has abandoned you. We like to complain about the decay of our culture and the world around us and wish that we had some kind of greater Christian nation, and yet persecution, opposition to our faith, is a gracious gift from God. When you lose things in your life for the sake of Christ, that's a gift from God. When you face opposition to truth in your workplace or your family or your friend group or in your classroom, that's a gift from God. When you endure persecution and ridicule and mocking for your faith, that's a gift from God. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is a gracious gift from God. Uh, Chris read a passage from Romans earlier. We know it's a gift from God because on one hand, it, it uh, refines us. Suffering in our life refines our faith and produces in us a lasting eternal hope. It's also a gift from God because in our suffering, we identify with Christ. If you're suffering for the sake of the gospel, you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus, who is the only one who has ever endured suffering with perfect steadfastness, who was betrayed by his friends, abandoned by friends and family in the last moments of his life, who was mocked, was made fun of, was slapped, was spit on, attacked verbally, physically, who was arrested, put on a, a fake trial with false witnesses, was lied about, false testimonies were given against him, bogus accusations. He was brutally beaten to the point where you couldn't recognize his form or who he was. He was nailed to a cross, a crown of thorns was driven into his scalp, and he hung there suffocating until ultimately giving up his life. And the the physical suffering that Jesus endured is one thing. The emotional and spiritual suffering is a whole nother. On the cross, imagine all of the guilt and shame that you feel for the sins in your life. Every every sin you've ever committed and the feelings of guilt and shame and, and nastiness that that brings along with it, and then multiply that by every single person in the world, the depths of the shame and the guilt that you don't even know, and put that on one man. One man who bears all of that, and then suffers the penalty that we all deserve for it. The wrath of God. The Father turning his face away and forsaking the Son. Jesus endured the worst possible suffering so that you and I wouldn't have to. And he did it with complete and total steadfastness. Never wavering, never compromising, never faltering. His entire life actively striving, moving towards the cross. Fearless in the face of opposition, fearless in the face of ridicule, fearless in the face of violence. And he endured all of that for you and for me. So that he could offer to us forgiveness for our sins, acquittal for our rebellion against the holy God, and adoption into his eternal family. And so if you are in Christ, why would you expect anything less than suffering? If Christ endured that type of suffering for you, and you are now united and hidden in him, you're going to endure suffering. And this is a good thing, a gift from God. Jesus promises or tells us that if anyone would follow him, he must take up his cross, deny himself and follow me. Jesus tells us that the world will hate us because of him. Persecution is a given for the life of the believer. First Peter 4, 12 through 13 says this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't be surprised, but rejoice because you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Don't just rejoice, but you're blessed. When you're insulted for, on, the, on behalf of Christ, it means you're blessed. Why? Because it is proof that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Suffering in the life of the Christian is not a sign of God's displeasure with us. Suffering in the life of the Christian is not a sign of cultural decay. Suffering in the life of the Christian is not a bad thing. It is a, a, a sign, a confirmation, an evidence that you are in Christ, that God is for you and that he is with you. And ultimately, we know that our suffering will end in glory because that's what happened to Jesus. He endured suffering and then experienced resurrection and glory. And we too, on the other end of suffering, will experience resurrection and glory. We'll end with this, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's our community, past, present, future believers, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly endured or was perfectly steadfast in, the, in, in the, the face of suffering. We never will be. We're fearful all the time. We're passive in our steadfastness. A lot of times we're not steadfast at all. Enduring difficult things is just that difficult. And so we opt not to. We falter in our testimony of Christ. We, we fumble around with our defense of the gospel and our life doesn't always look like a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so we look to the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus founded our faith, and he's perfecting it. You're not perfecting it. Jesus is, and he will. And then we run. We run a race of endurance with joy, looking to Christ. Uh, there's a legend, uh, a, Greek, a legend from Greek mythology that supposedly is the origins of the marathon. Maybe you guys are familiar with this. So, uh, in like the 500 or in the fifth century BC, as the Persians were invading Greece, uh, there was a battle that took place in the city of Marathon on the coast of, of Greece, and uh, it's known as the Battle of Marathon. And as the battle was coming to a close, there's allegedly a messenger that ran from Marathon to Athens. Uh, to tell people, tell, tell them of the news. It was a 25-mile distance from Marathon to Athens, and so that's supposedly where we got the initial distance for the marathon. When the messenger got to Athens, he shouts to everyone who's there in the city. He says, rejoice, we've won, and then he falls over and dies. And this is a picture of the life of a Christian running a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon with endurance, Enduring the pain, the difficulty, the suffering, all the while shouting, rejoice, there's victory in Christ. And we do that until the day we die. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for saving us, for rescuing us, for giving us a hope to endure suffering and difficulty. God, help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Jesus, ultimately, you have done that for us. And so we look to you. Help us to continue to look to you as we run this race with endurance. God, give us uh, uh, encouragement and, and the, the steadfastness we need to, to stand firm and endure whatever's going on in our life. And help us to 
worship you and praise you um, for your gracious goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.